Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to look for a closer connection to the earth. I'm at Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, right there on the Great Plains, which used to be covered with native prairie before the advent of Europeans and our imported form of agriculture, which displaced drastically almost all of the native species. Our guest today is Jim Kessler, and Jim has taught biology for 34 years in Iowa, but he found a leading, as we Quakers say, to restore the native habitats on a plot of 29 acres that he and his wife bought, including some 15 acres of tall grass prairie. Jim Kessler is passionate about the type of environment we can and need to restore, and he has been carrying the good news of an earth reborn widely, working with Quaker Earth Care Witness to get the word out. Jim joins us in person here on the Grinnell campus. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Hello, it's good to be here. First thing I have to say is I have to issue an apology because in the program for Friends General Conference, where I'm currently here, I put as a description for this, he's going to be talking about long grass prairie, and it's really tall grass prairie, and we shouldn't confuse long and tall. (laughs) So thank you for the correction about that. And would you tell me what the difference is? Is there anything called long grass? Typically, we talk about tall grass prairie as we move from the Midwest into the plains. Then we get into the midgrass prairie, and eventually, as you move further west, like into Colorado past mid-Nebraska, that's shortgrass prairie. Unfortunately, I think I read that the biggest crop in the United States is bluegrass. That is to say, what people normally do for lawn is the biggest cultivated item in the United States. We certainly have a lot of it, and we seem to love to mow our lawns. Our property, our 29 acres, is in the middle of some lawns that look like golf courses with neighbors who I love very much, but they spend a huge amount of time on their lawnmowers, which I find to be a huge waste of time. That's not been one of my obsessions ever. (laughs) Actually, that, and I, I say that truthfully. As a matter of fact, about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, our mower wasn't working. Our gas mower wasn't working, and our grass got up somewhere about two feet tall in our yard. I live out in the country, and I told my son, who was very obedient, just a high school kid at that time, I said, you know, Chris, we haven't been able to get the motor going. The grass is just out of control. You'll have to go out and cut it. Here's a pair of scissors. To his credit, instead of saying that I was completely crazy, he said, but Dad, that would take too long. (laughs) So I bought a scythe. So, Jim, I think we need to get to know a little bit about you and where your connection with prairie and with plants comes from. I mean, 34 years of teaching biology does not necessarily make you into a prairie expert, even though you live in Iowa. Where did your connection with the earth and with the plants of the earth come from? I was a farm boy, Quaker farm boy, who grew up pretty close to the earth. In the 50s and early 60s, everybody farmed. 
It wasn't called organic, but that's what it was. We didn't have all the chemicals. That was just the way things were. I grew up going after the cows, and so I was out in nature a lot. And I didn't realize that I was drawing closer to that at the time. And where did you connect specifically with, I guess you'd call native plantings, prairie, the kind of things that used to be here before the incursion of agriculture? I think probably I ought to tell my story a little bit. After graduating from William Penn University, I went to the University of Northern Iowa to work on a master's degree in biology. And there I met a number of the top tall grass prairie experts in the state in the Midwest, like Daryl Smith, who's run the tall grass prairie center at UNI. But I was there about the time of the first Earth Day. I wasn't particularly involved in environmental issues at the time. Kind of the first Earth Day bypassed me in a lot of ways. I wasn't an activist. But I read a Sierra Club book called A Moment in the Sun. And that really flipped my view of the world. It told me what the environmental crisis was and that we needed to change our ways of living. Then later, I started teaching, when I started teaching biology at Newton High School, I was invited to go out to a virgin prairie. And that was a transformative moment. I saw this beautiful landscape, this incredible landscape, went back to visit it, and then found out that it would be sold in an estate sale. It was plowed about a year later. And on the way to our friend's church, I'd drive by it every once in a while. My wife and I would grieve because we saw something very special that was lost. We had two objectives eventually. We wanted to move closer to our... We, were 20, we commuted 21 miles to Grinnell French Church. And we wanted to find a place to restore native habitat on. And we looked for many years. My wife was in an Audubon Society in the area, and the president of the Audubon Society owned a piece of property. The story got really good there because somebody else had 30 acres, but 20 of it, there was an option on it. Somebody had had an option on it. They were going to put a horse farm on it. We looked at 10 acres of timber, I didn't want to tear up a timber to put a house in. Kathy and I talked about it, and we both said if the other 20 acres was available, we would jump at it. I didn't give it a second thought. Kathy went home and prayed. My beloved wife went home and prayed about it, prayed that they would drop their option, and two weeks later they did. And we got a call. So we put an option on it and then bought 29 acres back in 1998 with the purpose of restoring habitat and also putting a house in the middle of it. Because I'd had connections with a lot of the top prairie experts in the Midwest, they became my mentors in planting prairie and in restoring other habitats because this 29 acres is kind of unique. It has all pretty much all the habitats that are found around Grinnell, Iowa, the native habitats. It has wetland. It has a creek that runs through it, which we restored the banks as wetlands. It has a couple of small oak savannas, and it also has 10 acres of oak hickory timber, which was pretty badly degraded at the time, but it had a lot of big, beautiful oak trees in it that are way over 100 years old. So we began the process of restoring that. 
I kept asking these people that I knew, what do I do now? <laughs> One very helpful person was Dr. Carl DeLong, who was a emeritus professor at Grinnell College and managed their Connor Environmental Research Area at the time. He was the manager of that property. He helped us in many ways in getting started with the reconstruction of prairie and then with the restoration of the other habitats. Today we have, well, actually our oldest son, Paul, became quite expert at finding native habitats within a five-county area, including Powsheet County, where we live. He began marking spots, GPSing them and marking them, and then collecting seed. So we got into a program called the Wildlife Habitat Improvement Program, which reimbursed, I think it was about 75% of our seed costs at that time. That's where we got started. There were a few native species, obviously. There were all the trees were there. There were things like wild plums and, and other native species. But now uh, there are about approximately 260 native species on the property. That's native species of plants. Of plants. There's probably some animals there too, right? It's amazing. All the native, practically everything, including a bobcat, are present have been spotted on the property. I've seen badgers. The other day I was out weeding burdock in the woods. I flushed a wild turkey and went to the next burdock and looked down and there was a wild turkey nest with about 14 eggs in it. Kathy is pretty expert birder. She has a bluebird trail. We, have, we always have lots of bluebirds around. She feeds birds. And because we have high-quality habitat, we have just about any bird that likes that is adapted to those particular habitats locally. So we have lots of songbirds, and her feeders are kind of just a steady stream of birds, especially in the morning and evening. And we can sit at our dining room table and look out the window, and it's quite a sight. So how much of your land is converted to native prairie now, or tall grass prairie? It's approximately 15 acres of it is tall grass prairie, but we had to reconstruct that. We had to round up it and start all over. That's been quite an experience because a lot of it had been in pasture, so there were a lot of we- there was quite a seed bank underneath. So we spent 20 years weeding. Now a lot of that's dissipating, and it's pretty weed-free. I realize that a lot of people struggle with the idea of using herbicides. However, when you're dealing with species that are perennials and that spread underground, there really isn't an alternative. There are some other alternatives, but they're not practical on 30 acres. So I take a little squirt bottle and use a herbicide that kills it with one application, with just a little bit on the plant, and it's gone. With 30 acres, we have to use some herbicides because they're just too great a volume to do something like you might do in a yard, (laughs) where you might be able to put some plastic over it or something like that. You really have to put no effort at all towards convincing me that it's beautiful. But I'm wondering if some of our listeners are wondering if... 
it's particularly important. I mean, if you've got, say, 15 acres of tall grass prairie in the sea of corn which and soybeans and other things, which is Iowa, does this make a difference, and why is it important? One of the things that I've noticed over the years is the fact that a lot of the free ecosystem services that uh, we take for granted have reappeared because we have a lot of bats and songbirds and dragonflies. We don't have a lot of mosquitoes. (laughs) The natural predators eat them instead of them biting us. That is a free ecosystem service. And I'd like to talk about that concept. Native plants and animals and ecosystems are really important to ordinary people. They provide a lot of free ecosystem services to us that we take for granted. A guy by the name of Robert Costanza a few years ago estimated that worldwide they're worth about $44 trillion annually. Haiti is an extreme example of what happens when the native plants have been stripped from the landscape and free ecosystem services are lost. It's a pathetic, awful situation for human beings. Our our wonderful native oak trees here in Iowa are amazing. We have a lot of bur oaks on our property. These are some of the free ecosystem services one tree provides. Think about this. They provide oxygen, purify the air. They provide lumber. They increase property value. They store carbon, which stabilizes the climate. They reduce soil erosion. They absorb water, which reduces flooding. They provide cover for wildlife. They supply nesting sites for birds. One thing that's very important is that they provide food for insect caterpillars that songbirds feed to their young. That's huge because it takes thousands of insect caterpillars for one pair of birds to feed their babies to adulthood. And in many places, that's lacking. They grow acorns that are important food for mammals and wild turkeys. They provide shade and cooling for homes and yards. They support wildlife populations for hunting. This is just one plant, an oak tree. They provide shade and cooling for homes and yards. And they inspire us while hiking, birdwatching, and camping. So native plants are hugely important. We're trying to replant some of them. I'll be planting a few this week. It's really hot, but we'll make it work. Our oaks are key species without which much of our Iowa wildlife would disappear. They're really, really important here. And most of our oaks are getting really old because we find these old oak savannas and we build homes in them because they're very beautiful places to live. And then we mow all of the you know, all we, the next generation. All the next generation of oaks. Plus, we have uh, large deer populations that mow them down as well. And so, planting and protecting those and letting them grow is very important, which is something we're working to do to get the next generation of oaks started on our property. The fact is that all native plants, not just oak trees, provide many free ecosystem services that enrich everybody's lives. And how does that work in terms of what we might call a tall grass prairie island? You're you're here and then there's fields of corn around you. Just as you were saying with the oaks, 
the next generation doesn't come along because it doesn't have the environment to propagate in because it's being mowed or right. cut down or eaten. How does that work in terms of prairie? Is there hope for the future of prairie taking over a significant portion of Iowa at some point? Or does the fact that you have tall grass prairie, would that help something that's a mile or two or 20 miles away? One of my heroes is Doug Ptolemy. He is a professor of entomology from uh, Maryland who has been going across the United States telling the same message that I've been telling to people frequently that gardeners and people that have acreages can make a big difference. Ptolemy has a vision of creating 20 million acres of attractive wildlife habitat corridors using native plants on half the yard acreage in people's yards in the U.S. This would create an area of restored habitat larger than the total acreage of all of our largest national parks added together. A butterfly garden in your yard, in anybody's yard, can help to make this vision of restored habitat a reality. And people can do that so it looks good and so that it's tastefully done, which is something I've been talking about to many audiences over the last seven years and giving the materials about how to do that. As a matter of fact, a, a couple of years back, I interviewed some people who were doing that in Michigan with their yard and with other yards and encouraging that. And it, it does make a difference, as you say. I wonder what Iowa looks like now versus what it was back before agriculture came into this area. At one point, I read about grass being taller than people's heads, so they couldn't actually see anything. They're walking through the grass. Is that what tall grass prairie is like, or is tall grass prairie smaller than it used to be? It's as tall as it used to be. Now, those situations probably would have happened in some of the wetter areas where you'd be up on a horse and you still have grass up beside your head. However, that happens in the fall of the year because the grasses are, right now, they're about knee-high. They'll be waist-high later, and then when they shoot their flowering stalks, they'll be huge, many 10-foot talls, especially the big blue stems. One thing that I'd like to share about, I had a serendipity moment a few years ago. We'd done a lot of our restoration, and I was out on a fall evening. This was a, an eye-opening experience. I was listening to the tree crickets in a fence row that's near our house. And when we got close to the fence row, it was almost deafening. It's one of those warm fall evenings. I went out to the prairie just beyond it, the reconstructed prairie, and the field crickets and katydids were singing quite a chorus. And I thought, I'll go to the GMO cornfield, my good friend's GMO cornfield across the road. So I walked over there. What do you suppose I heard, Mark? Quaker silence, probably. <laughs> yes, dead silence. Right. The only thing that I heard was a little bit of interstate noise because it's about a quarter mile away. So Rachel Carson wrote about Silent Spring. We have silent spring, summer, fall, and winter in our fields. 32 million acres of Iowa is corn and soybeans. And it's like that. It's basically a dead zone for all wildlife. Most people don't understand that. Our chemicals kill virtually all of the weeds, except for a few that have developed resistance. 
the neonics, neonicotinoid chemical that they put on the seed coating is comes up through the plant. It's a systemic pesticide. It kills the insects. I mean, it's great for the farmers. They produce a lot of crop because they don't have any pest damage to speak of, unless there's something that comes in on that particular year that they have to deal with. But it's virtually a dead zone. And that's why our monarchs have been disappearing. Uh, When I moved to our property in, oh, no, we hadn't moved there yet. I started mowing fire breaks around various parts on the property so we could start burning and doing controlled burns. And there were monarchs all over the trees. This was back in the early 90s. And then they gradually disappeared. In Iowa, we have a Iowa State University and a lot of the conservation organizations and farm organizations have banded together to put together something called the Iowa Monarch Consortium. They've been encouraging people to plant native plantings, prairie and other native plantings, that help the monarchs. Last year, I saw more monarchs than I'd seen for years, not nearly what we'd seen in the past. But I'm hopeful. Actually, this morning I was out weeding, and I think the first hatch of monarchs is appearing because they're beginning to, I'm beginning to see monarchs again. We had the first the wave of monarchs that came in that were laying eggs. And then I didn't see any monarchs for a few weeks, and now they're reappearing. It is having an effect. Actually, there are some encouraging signs because, like, one of the big pushes in 4-H this year is to educate the kids about native bees. I went through a period of time when I was, after I retired from teaching and retired from being a scoutmaster of a a large scout troop in Newton where I had taught, which I had done that for 21 years. I said, Lord, what's up next? What am I supposed to do with my life? And I searched for an answer for probably four years. I got two answers. One was you're supposed to talk to other people about native plantings and the importance of them. And second, you're supposed to mentor younger men in your church, just like older guys have done for me so effectively over the years. QEW gave me my first chance to speak. I've never gone on social media. It must have been the Lord's leading because I'm not a great public speaker. I know that. I'm very passionate, and people sense that. I've been invited without the use of social media to speak over 90 times. Between 90 and 100 times I've spoken to groups. Now, one thing that's exciting this year is I haven't been asked to speak much because lots of other people are talking about pollinators and native plantings. There's a a wave of lots and lots of people and organizations that are doing this kind of education. I'm feeling led to shift my emphasis. I've been talking to conservation organizations, community groups, church organizations, churches, garden clubs, garden shows, and that kind of thing. But Iowa State University has been doing research at Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge during the past about nine years now on something they call the Prairie Strips Program, where they put prairie strips into a field on 10% of the acreage on the contour and at the bottom of waterways with amazing results. I mean, this, this is incredible. By doing that, 
they reduced the soil loss from the field by 95% with that wow. one practice. That's, that's a big difference. They reduced the amount of phosphorus that moves out of the field into streams and waterways by 90%. And the amount of nitrogen runoff is reduced by 85%. They've done very careful research on that. I took their training, and I'm trained as a Prairie Strips consultant. I probably won't take the immense amount of time that it takes to go out to farms and do this, but I, I'm feeling led to go to farm audiences. I'm a farm boy. I've been away from the farm for a long time. It will be a very challenging audience. It will be very different from talking to garden clubs and those sorts of people. But because of family connections and because there are farmers who are my dear friends at Cornell Friends Church, I still know how to speak their language. So, folks, uh, if you get a call from Jim Kessler to come talk to you about your farm, you should accept it because this is a leading that's coming right from the Spirit, and he's there to help you learn how to heal the earth, be part of the healing and health of the earth. He is my guest today for Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website where you'll find 14 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. So some of the organizations Jim Kessler is talking about will link on our website. Please follow to them. And I'm sure that Jim Kessler would be happy to talk to you specifically if you have some farmer friends who need to get some of the information that he's got about what's going to improve this world for all of us. Also on our site, you'll find uh, information about the stations that carry this. We're up to some 41 stations nationwide carrying Northern Spirit Radio programs. We'd love it if you encourage someone in your neighborhood to start carrying it, too. Community radio stations are so absolutely important in terms of getting an alternative message out there to the world. So please remember to support your local community radio station, any other forms of alternative media, because there's a word that's going to go out that isn't going to be carried elsewhere. Just remember, when you go to the Northern Spirit Radio website, you can leave comments on the program. So you hear me talking to Jim Kessler or any of the other folks. Please leave us a comment and let us know what you think and what your input is and who else I should be talking to. Uh, There's also a donate button. This is full-time work, which is supported not by government and not by corporations, but by you, the listener. So we depend on you to make this possible. So click donate where you can. But first, remember, support your local community radio station. Again, we're speaking with Jim Kessler. He taught biology for some 34 years. Part well, of I his, still teach biology. <laughs> and he's still teaching biology. At a community college. <laughs> yes, So it doesn't stop. I was actually wondering if the fact that you taught biology was at all helpful in this. I think there's at one point in our society, you know, with the Green Revolution, you know, just for farming practices, put on pesticides, put on fertilizer, use GMO seeds. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what's good. I'm not saying that's what you were teaching in terms of biology, but it certainly informed the kind of choices and things you're supposed to be advocating for. Did being a biology teacher actually prepare you in any way to create your tall grass prairie? It did. The way I got to this was kind of circuitous. We have a cabin, family cabin that's been in the family for about 90 years near Boulder, Colorado. And one 4th of July, 
A four-day fog came in, you couldn't see the next cabin, and a girl handed me a Yule Gibbons book on wild foods. And so I started, I read it, I read his other books, I started collecting wild foods at home. Of course, that got me out of the, out of the house and into the natural areas in the area. And I had to learn what we call plant taxonomy, or how to identify plants, so I wouldn't poison my family. Eventually, I didn't care about that anymore. I was seeing so many beautiful things that I just began to learn all the plants and began to learn a lot about the native plants in the area. I was interested in a prairie that's in the Iowa Preserve System and did a floral survey of that, and I learned a lot more of the native plants during that process. And so that was part of the background. But I also, the National Wildlife Federation for a long time has had their backyard program. Back in the 70s when nobody knew what they were doing in butterfly gardens, I got some native seed from somebody. I think the County Conservation Board or Naturals gave me some seed. And I had a clay spot in my backyard, so I planted it. And then I ordered some more seed from the one, there was only one seed supplier in Iowa at the time for native seeds. Planted that, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot through that process. I managed a prairie that had been planted back in the late 60s behind Newton High School and managed that for about, for most of the 34 years. And so it was the school prairie and wild area and taught in that area. So that was part of the process. And through that, like I said, I made a lot of mistakes in management. I learned what not to do. And so when we started our property, with help from some of the experts that I had access to, like Daryl Smith, who I mentioned before, and Paul Christensen, who wrote a book about the native plants of Iowa, and several others, when I had a question and a problem that I couldn't solve, I'd say, I'd get on the phone, call one of them and say, now what do I do next? And they would tell me how to do it. And that was very, very helpful. Although I still, you know, there are two sciences that are basically young in the area of biology. One is restoration ecology. And the other, of course, is biotechnology, you know, DNA technology, that whole field. In terms of science, those are fairly young sciences as we look at the breadth of biology. And so we're still learning. I learn and I still ask questions. There's a man by the name of Carl Kurtz who has done this longer than anybody in Iowa. And he's a farmer who's turned a lot of his farm into prairie. And then he, he harvests and sells prairie seed on a big chunk of his property. So when I have an insolvable problem, I call my friend Carl and I say, now what do I do next? And he solves the problem. I guess another part of the whole process, you know, it's been a spiritual journey. I'm a Quaker. I'm a Christian. You know, a lot of people get hung up on the dominion verse, which I'm understanding from now from theologians that that was a really bad translation and it's been very badly misinterpreted. But it says in the next chapter, the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it equally, you know, to work it and to take care of it. 
unfortunately, you know, the latest UN report says we have about a million species that are in danger of extinction within the next few decades. Another report from the, I think it's from the World Wildlife Federation last year, indicated that we've lost, in the last 40 years, we've lost 60% of our vertebrate animal population numbers. The number one thing, climate change is part of it, but the number one problem is habitat loss. In Iowa, for example, I read in uh, Iowa Outdoors, which is a DNR publication, a few years ago, that from 2003 to 2013, we actually, in response to the whole ethanol thing, we converted 3.2 million acres of, of wildlife habitat in Iowa of conservation reserve program prairies, hay ground, and small grain fields to urban development and row crops in 10 years. That's a huge amount of ground. Sounds think, like suicide, actually, the way and I, And then, then we wonder why the pollinators are disappearing. One of the reasons that I talk to people, I have seven grandchildren. I'll be spending time with our two sons and and three of our grandsons at our cabin in Colorado next week. But anyway, it's it, it's been a little bit crazy what we've been doing because we can't make it without pollinators. 80% of what we see outside is insect pollinated. The other 20% is wind pollinated. Eventually, 80% of what we see outside in terms of plants would be extinct without pollinators. When I speak with people, I like to give them a list to explain this whole process about what foods would be left without pollinators. Without bees, butterflies, and other pollinators that depend on native plants, what would be left? Jack-o'-lanterns at Halloween, watermelons, pumpkin pie, lettuce, apples, cucumbers, oranges, grapes, cherries, peas, squash, almonds, blueberries, tomatoes, cantaloupe, carrots, corn, and green beans. What would be left from that list without pollinators? I need help from the audience. What's going to be left without pollinators? Anybody got an answer? Come on, Jim, you must know. Carrots. Carrots. You have to have pollinators to produce the seed for the carrots. You have to have pollinators to produce seed for carrots. Okay. Anybody else got a guess? And for lettuce, by the way, you have to have pollinators to produce the seed. No. None of them? There actually are three. There's three. Okay. One is wind pollinated, corn. Corn is wind pollinated. And peas and green beans are self-pollinated for the most part. That's all that would be left. Diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer would increase dramatically without pollinators because we wouldn't have the... I mean. I was just reading about the problems with, you know, especially on the Native American reservations and also in inner cities where they, where the only food that's available is from the local gas stations and uh, fast food restaurants and how disease is rampant. And, Nutritive disease. And, yes. So most of what's in the produce aisle would disappear, almost everything. A third of our food supply would disappear without pollinators. And pollinator numbers are plummeting. 
And the way to reverse that, there are two ways to do it. It's interesting. Uh, Dr. Marla Spivek, who's an internationally renowned pollinator expert from the University of Minnesota, says there are two simple ways to bring back pollinators. Add lots of native wildflowers back into our landscapes. You know, pollinators, I would add, are just like us. They need a dependable supply of food. Theirs happens to be nectar and pollen. And second, to keep the wildflowers that we plant free of pesticides, which can be a little tricky at times in this real world, especially in the agricultural Midwest. But we can do it reasonably well. When we talk about pollinators, it brings back an Aldo Leopold quote that I share with audiences. He was an Iowa boy, an Iowa native, very famous conservationist, he wrote the Sand County Almanac. This was one of his quotes. I don't think it's in the Sand County Almanac, but it doesn't matter. The last word of ignorance is the man who says of a plant or animal, what good is it? If the biota in the course of eons has built something that's hard to understand, then who but a fool would discard seemingly useless parts to keep every cog and wheels first precaution of intelligent tinkering? The reality is we're tinkering and we're discarding plants and animals that we depend on for our livelihood and for our well-being. But in that UN report, it also says that it isn't too late. We can do something about it, but we have to take it very seriously. Is there any hope on the horizon in addition to the fact that you and Kathy planted your tall grass prairie? Is this a movement? Is it happening on any kind of scale? I think it's beginning to happen. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Des Moines, Iowa, and some of the metro urban areas are beginning to plant lots of urban prairies and lots of native plantings within their city limits. Actually, recently, Cedar Rapids is going to plant, I don't know, it was like, I think, a 1,000 acres or more of of uh, native plantings within the city limits of Cedar Rapids and in the adjoining area, which is amazing and really, really important. The other thing that I've seen happening is there are no more plant sales in the spring that have locally native plants available to people, and people are flocking to them. There's hope. As a man of faith, I have to have hope. That's part of what faith is about. But that hope carries a responsibility that I carry a message to others that they can do something about this. I heard a quote one time that I love. It's an African proverb. Don't know where it came from. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent a night in a tent with a mosquito. (laughs) I've been there, done that, in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a few more questions for you, Jim. Uh, A few more things to fill in. For one thing, you mentioned a couple times about wild foods, foraging. And I'm very passionate about it. I, as a matter of fact, in just a few months, going to have a celebration of 25 years of marriage to my wife. And as part of the festivities we're going to have in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, I created a a recipe for wild rice acorn burgers. 
because acorns are such a good food. They used to be a food source for so many people, such a significant percentage of our population, back some hundreds of years, yes. You mentioned Ewell Gibbons, who you know is Quaker, and he even taught at Pendle Hill. Do you continue with wild foods? My friend Sam Thayer, who I've interviewed, he's part of an organization called Foragers Harvest. He says people value what they know. Birders value birds, for instance, right? Uh, Until that happens, a lot of people, it's just a thing out there. It's a bird until they know it. Uh, And so he says if you get people involved in wild foods and foraging, all of a sudden they see things that are invisible before Yeah, I did that for a while and actually got away from it. It's kind of fun, kind of amusing. Our two sons tease Kathy and I about our wild foods phase. (laughs) (laughs) They were young when we did it, and we tried a lot of things. We did cattail pancakes and a whole bunch of things. But we did get away from that. We currently are, we don't garden we have, we're in a local CSA where we can order exactly what we want every week online without having to take a full share. I am a really close friend and actually do what we call green yard makeover workshops with Jordan Scheibel, who's a Grinnell College graduate, a friend of mine, and our local community-supported ag farmer who I see weekly and, and a good friend. And so we talk with people about how they can use native plantings in hedgerows, in privacy borders, use native plantings, uh, native trees and shrubs, and and also add a few fruit fruit and nut trees in the mix. We talk about putting butterflies next to your garden so you get the beneficial insects, so you you don't have as many insect problems because you get the insect predators drawn to the garden. We share lots of strategies. One of the things that I had to solve before I went out to people to share, I, I give them information about how to start uh, butterfly gardens and native plantings after I do talks. And that's uh, part of the package. And of what I went through... Uh, lists of native plants and looked at other people's lists for butterfly gardens and developed uh, a list of plants, most of which are shorter because people aesthetically in their gardens want something that isn't big and huge. And I share that with people for both shade gardens and for uh, butterfly gardens in the sun. And you know, like Jordan, uh, the CSA gardener, does the part of the presentation about organic gardens. And he, he's put in a hedgerow at his, uh, on his uh, little organic farm outside of north of Grinnell just the last few years. So he's putting some of this into practice, and so he teaches people about that. And it's been really amazing because we advertise a little bit through emails and uh, we've done workshops twice now on the green yard makeover concept or no three times the first time we had such a response we had like 50 people signed up for each of four sessions with 
different topics, uh, parts of that uh, green yard makeover concept. We had to move from the Imagine Grinnell building out to Grinnell Friends Church because there wasn't enough room in the building that we originally were going to go to uh, for the audience. And so that, that was really gratifying. And I don't know how many people have planted butterfly gardens and, and native plants out there, but I've spoken at this point from audiences from one person once to hundreds in various settings, and hopefully some of them have planted, I'm, I'm sure, I've spoken literally now free of charge I to probably a couple thousand people in various audiences and various venues. Now, one of the things that I've done, if I get any money from my talks, I give it to Right Sharing of World Resources because I believe in what that does in helping uh, women's groups in third world countries to start micro-enterprises. And uh, so I, I kind of try to help help the earth and help people as well, help the poor. Just a couple more questions. One is, you've talked about the pollinators and how important they are. The the plants having the selection out there, they're important to the pollinators for that matter. Does this help the person across the street from you has the GMO plants? Does, does it help their plants at all? Does it help the rest of the agricultural establishment? Does it, do your pollinators and, do, and what you're doing, does that actually help them at all? Well, since corn is wind pollinated, it doesn't help the corn. <laughs> actually, how do soybeans? Soybeans uh, are self-pollinated, but pollinators do help with the pollination of soybeans to a certain degree. There is some research that shows that they do help to increase yield slightly. And some people, are, I'm sure, are just going to have the question, Jim. Can't you just leave the property alone and won't it restore itself? Does it, does it take your intervention? Do you have to get out there and pull out the burdock or the other invasive species? I hate to tell you, but reality is we live in a world that's full of invasive species. When I was a scoutmaster, we were doing environmental science merit badge, and we went to a state park, and it was an eye-opener for me. Because three-quarters of what I was looking at were not locally native species. They were invasive species, even in a state park. And so a prairie, actually, we burn everything. We do controlled burns in the woodlands, on the woodland floor, in the oak savannas, and the wetlands. And that's very important. Now, most people don't live where they're restoring property. Kathy and I literally spend most of our summers outside. <laughs> I was outside this morning doing some work. And last week on Wednesday, see, we gave our property, most of it, all but two acres, to the Baroque Land Trust in Iowa City for long-term management and protection. We looked at conservation easements, but basically all that amounts to, it, it's, it's good, but 
all they do is leave it alone and look at it once a year and make sure it has the same use. And the invasives, the multiflora rose, and autumn olive and the other invasives just return, and it's a mess. I've watched it happen too many times in my lifetime. So we realize that to really leave our property for future generations in a reasonably good state, we had to give it away. So we gave it away to a, a smaller land trust that has about, they have about a 12 or 13 properties. They have a, a stewardship specialist who can, comes out. Uh, they often have interns or AmeriCorps help. And so they, they've been coming out and helping me. Our biggest uh, challenge in, uh, has been... <laughs> The prairies are in pretty good shape. We've worked those, and that took quite a few years. Most of the weeds are gone out of those, and with persistence, we've been able to take care of most of those problems. But the woodland had to be, we had to thin out a lot of the shade-loving trees that were threatening the oaks and the hickories, and and to leave, we had to leave some biodiversity in there, in terms of trees, we did that, and then we got light in, and the brambles started growing. So we had lots of uh, red raspberries <laughs> that were just thick. And so now, with help from the land trust, they're coming in and uh, using big, you know, they aren't weed eaters, but they're, they have blades on them, and they cut all the brambles right down to the ground, and then we go in and, and cut all the wood and then remove about a 70-year accumulation of downed wood because, uh, bless his heart, a man with good intentions put it into timber reserve, uh, that timber into timber reserve in the 1930s, and it hadn't been touched since. And Baroque wood lasts for 50, 60, 70 years on the ground sometimes. It takes a long time for it to decay. If it's up off the ground a little bit, part of it, it doesn't decay very fast. Not, not in Iowa, at least. And so there's a lot of wood. And so a week ago, Jason Taylor, their stewardship specialist, and I were out cutting wood and hauling it up to our wood pile because we burn wood in our in our home as as part of our winter fuel supply, a major part of it. So that, and woodland restoration is hard work. It's brutally hard work, but I'm 72 and I can do almost anything I did in my mid fifties because of all this work. Restoration work has helped me spiritually. It's helped me physically. It's helped me mentally. It's done the same thing for Kathy. It's been a real blessing to our family. Our grandchildren have spent time on our property and many visits. They've helped out at times, and our children have helped at times with with the whole process. So it's been a family effort. And when people visit, they tell us that it's a healing place. I can well believe that. I have just one more question. Way back at the beginning of your, your progress towards having this tall grass prairie on your lot, Acquiring the land, evidently Kathy prayed for the conditions to fall into place for it to happen. They weren't likely 
but things got switched around is do you rent her out for prayer needs i i just need to know if she can help out i've got some projects that i, I think she's, if she could pray she's for an maybe amazing it'd make a difference. woman she's a quilter a birder she teaches quilt piecing at, at a quilt shop in the area to a lot of women and she's she's an amazing person she teaches a Sunday school class, and it's interesting. When we went to school back in the 60s, women, you know, there were some limitations on what women were supposed to do. She should have been a college teacher, but she's she's a great adult teacher. She goes into things in depth that I don't, but uh, she is just an amazing person, amazing inspiration to me, and uh, actually, we'll be going to Iceland to celebrate our 50th anniversary in August. Uh, our 50th anniversary is the next uh, Janu- in January. But uh, it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Kathy's been she works just as hard as I do. She's outside. She does a lot of weeding, and she's very good at it. She recognizes the plants. She was this year one of her big projects was to go out and to cut the little invasive trees that. Uh, that the fire didn't get and and to treat them with a just a little dab of herbicide so that they would not come back from the roots and she's she's amazingly good at that at finding things that I don't always spot <laughs> my gratitude goes out to Kathy to you for healing the land for taking your proper care of the land under your wing. So many people haven't been doing it, but you've been inspiring people both through what you've done on your land and to talking to other people to know that it's possible, that it's enjoyable, and that it's rewarding both spiritually and physically for yourself and for the rest of the world. Thank you for doing that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Bye. It's been a pleasure to share today. And folks, we've been speaking with Jim Kessler. I'll have a link to some resources related to prairies on nordenspiritradio.org website. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on nordenspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 